Join us on this special conversation with Winky Prattney from New Zealand on this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer. Often we pray for revival. Winky and Doug discuss the importance of seeking the revival giver rather than revival itself. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardinseasonpodcast.org. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Winky, good to see you. It's it's nice to be live rather than being. (laughs) Wow, we're just so honored that you're with us and took the time. I know it's 17 hours difference between us in Texas and you there in Auckland. I was just talking to William earlier about the time I visited there, probably 35 years ago. It was right after you had the house built and you had the batch was going to be your library there. And William says that's now a B&B and where he's staying. And I was envious of all the books that are behind you there. And of course, the ones you have in, in Lindale. Well, I like the look of your library. It looks very good and used, which is always cool. You've literally impacted many of our lives. I know, as I said earlier, I've known you for nearly 40 years, nearly four decades, and had the pleasure of being there in New Zealand and at your home. And of course, many times when you were up in Lindale at YWAM, the imported impact of what God has given you has literally impacted a lot of us, myself and so many ministries around the world. And so we're very honored you're with us. I happen to pull out old copies and new copies of your book, Revival Principles to Change the World. So I found this older version. And then I've got mine all marked up in this version that we did with, I think it was Living by the Book with Regent University, did a whole curriculum. And we were getting ready for in 1996, 40 days of worship, prayer, and fasting with 300 plus churches participating here in Houston. And I asked everyone to please, all the pastors, would they at least agree, as many as could, to go through all the audio cassettes and to go through your book, Revival, because I wanted the whole greater Houston area to really be on the same page at the same time of the what ifs, if God were to show up and if our hearts truly were submitted to God. Because you said in your book, when God finds someone with courage to pray and live a life of holiness and compassion, he can literally change the face of a nation. Even back in the 90s, we needed that more than ever. We had to create a hunger level for people to get back to a personal consecration, the holiness of God, so that we would have his heart of compassion to reach the culture which we were living in. Winky, I just want you to share this, how you've been doing, what's happening, and then I have some questions and some talking points I'd like to cover about some of the history of the ministries that you've been involved in and some of the unexpected detours that many of us have gone through and how you've dealt with those as well, and yet still continuing to keep your focus on the purposes and promises of God. I got saved, of course, in the 60s, early 60s, last three months of high school. I went to Papatoy High School, which is one of the major high schools close to us here. In becoming a Christian, the girl that I married and became my wife was uh, sitting, I was leading some singing in a little street mission thing, and this uh, angel was right there beside the seat that I was going to sit down on when I finished the worship thing, and it was Faye. I'd never seen her before, but getting sitting next to an angel is really cool. And she said, have you ever heard of Youth for Christ? And I, I thought, was well, an American company or something? I, I don't know. Only thing I knew about America at that time is that they had cowboy hats and smoked cigars and had Polaroid cameras, and that's about all I knew. And she said, well, in Tuesday night we have a, it's called a Youth for Christ tea, and there's a few hundred there, so would you like to come? 
And I would have come, especially if she asked me to go any place, to Mars, I would have gone with her, so I said yes. And when I arrived there, it was quite amazing. We had a band for two and a half years when I was still in high school. And we used to always think, well, Christians do all right, but they have pretty lousy singing in bands and stuff. And so the band that came out was very good. And I thought, well, these people are pretty good. Then when that finished, I went into my first youth prayer meeting. I'd never been in one of those before. So I was up in this little um, sort of a thing right close to where I'd been. And it was in that prayer meeting I met some of my very first friends. Of course, Faye was there too, in YFC. I also saw a silver filing cabinet thing, but it was about maybe eight foot high. It was very tall, but very short. And I thought, I kept watching that, and I came to that thing a number of times. And the reason I'm telling you about it is, I thought, I wonder what is in this little filing cabinet. I pulled it open, and it was when Billy Graham had the first awakening that happened in, you remember, in LA that year, because he had traveled with Tori Johnson, and they were the first people with Youth for Christ. And the weird thing is, they didn't know this, but at the same time Youth for Christ began in America, we also started a Youth for Christ in New Zealand. And for two and a half years, nobody knew there was another Youth for Christ in the world. So when I'm sitting there, Billy, very shortly after that, the incredible thing that happened there in LA with the tent and all of that thing, he came to New Zealand and to Australia. And I still have the books for those things. But when I pulled this open, it was, you know, in a crusade that people have, they'll often have these decision cards and they have like little square you know, things on. And it would say things like, why did you come up here tonight and stuff like that. Many of those, it's, I, I came and said, did you become a Christian? Or wanted to become a Christian and they checked that one. So I thought, nobody's opened this, I'm sure for a whole bunch of years. But um, because it's here, I'm going to just take all those cards and I'll find out how many of them were tied to one particular thing. And the interesting thing is, we'd see a lot of them were first time decision thing. But I asked people, what do you think the second one was? Some people have different ideas. And I said, the second one was this, I need to have assurance of salvation. And I thought when the majority of people say that, it tells me a lot of people have made some kind of religious decision, but their lives have never been affected or changed long enough for them to catch it, how wonderful God is. And so I, scan I, I made a, not a graph, but a whole layout of that. So that was it. The Baptist Tabernacle, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, no, it's just above the the place. It was just down from the Baptist Tabernacle where Spurgeon's, what was it, cousin? Spurgeon's ne nephew visited nephew. many years ago. Yeah, so he finds all this research. Everyone's just left all these decision cards. They didn't know what to do with them. He goes in there, <laughs> and he goes through every single card, and he does his own analysis of the Billy Graham crusade fruit and what assurance of salvation is this big one that he realized that's a need to deal with that. Out of that long look at that, I discovered what Billy Graham also discovered in many of the follow-ups he had for these crusades. He'd come back a year later or send somebody in to see how many people were followed up by that thing. And the sad thing for him, he realized a whole bunch of people who had made a decision for the Lord, and it was a real decision, did not have anybody visit them after that crusade. Nobody, not even the people who had you know, counseled and stuff. Some places less than 80% actually had had anybody come. And so he changed his follow-up stuff three different times after those trips. 
And what I did is I took those things, I found 16 areas that we know in the church, they're not some new and odd thing about like when is Jesus coming back, but they were real decisions that at least I didn't know at that time, a large number of the churches had not really preached on that today. I, I could just list a couple of them. There were simple ones like, here's the Lord. Here's the Lord of everything. Here's God and we're not, you know, that whole there. And then there were some that I'd never heard, the grief of God over the sin of the world, holiness, repentance. So those areas just seemed to be forgotten or never seen before. Mm. So I had 16 of those, and out of that came a thing we called 21CR, 21st Century Reformation. And that was based on A.W. Tozer's statement when he said there will be no revivals without reformation. He wasn't talking about a particular reformation. He's talking about the return to the scriptures and the return to God and to loving him. And then the 16 that came out, each one of them, when that thing had been restored at a time, then a revival had broken out, sometimes just in cities, sometimes in nations. So putting those together, we, I thought, what would happen if you just took these, instead of just one of them, put the 16 of them together? And the result was 21CR. And it has been used by tens of thousands of young people now in colleges particularly, and in thousands of universities. And uh, um, of course, Assemblies of God have a name for their, and I, I wasn't Assemblies of God or Anglican or anything. I'm just a pagan chemist that got saved. In that deal, Chi Alpha is the name that is given to that. And for many friends that I have now in Chi Alpha, we shot, this is a podcast, and we've done, I think, the first Christian podcast in New Zealand. This it wasn't advertised. People didn't have to pay anything to come, but we had close to 400 people turn up for that. It might be even what you've got showing up now. And in that, there some were pastors, some were youth pastors, some were missionaries, some were uh, actual traveling evangelists, and others were business people. Roughly that 400, it was done in a church, but not as a church thing. And we put the majority of them in church pews, and right in the front, almost like a talk show, almost like this, it's like a breakfast show in the morning. We took about four or five of them, just in a brief circle, and talked just like I'm talking to you here. And it was shot eight hours a day for two days, and nobody moved. They all, they all said, we didn't even have, you know, worship time and then have communion and wash each other's feet. We didn't do all of the cool things. We just simply took each one of those areas and explored it and what God said, what history had happened when it took place. And later on, that material, the audio version of it was put into what we believe was the first Christian podcast, and it was called God's iPod back then, yeah. done in 2005, I believe. And we called it 21CR, so kids came from all over the world to the universities. Chi Alpha picked it up as a giveaway thing, very much like most of you know about Alpha, you know, which probably four million people more would have gone through Alpha. But Alpha was really like an apologetics thing, and it was kind of based on like, why the Bible, why Jesus, these things, for people to come who needed to get saved. This was something else. It was for people who were saved but needed assurance of salvation if even in those areas or people that knew nothing at all about God and weren't against him because they didn't even know he existed. So we thought, what would happen if we gave them something like this? And so there was only one, though it didn't cost you anything, 
with only one rule. If you're going to have this, you have to sign up. You have to, because the next one you won't get unless you finish the last one. You didn't want someone to get just one piece of it. Yeah. You wanted them to get the whole enchilada. So it's 16 parts long. And if you get just one or two, but you don't get the rest, then you don't get the full picture. Because it didn't cost anything, besides it didn't even have a religious name. It's like 21 see how what is that? But looking at the young people whose lives were so affected by, by God and by, the, by his word and by the record of what he'd done in that book that you held up, Revival, that one there, the records, and then get those versions of it, that when people returned to the Lord and returned also to his word and what he actually meant by those words and actually begin to do, it's not just to look at it, but to do what he asked us to do. So I've boiled down to just two simple things. And I, I want somebody to give their lives to the Lord. It's not, I don't give them 400 other things they need to know. And my two rules would be uh, two facts, two realities. The first one is God is God and you are not, and neither am I, and neither is anybody else you've ever heard of. He's the only God, and the real God. And actually that whole 21CR begins with that that there is only one real God, and this is what he's like and what he done. So each one was done like that. Well, by the second one, there'll be a third one probably before I die. But the second rule would be make it hard on God and easy on you, because uh, he can afford it and you can't. In other words, let him have the rules. If you were like my friend Mario Morello and Catherine Kuhlman had said something to him, it would have been trust the Holy Spirit in everything you do. Don't, don't trust yourself and your own ideas. Don't take what you already know to be the rule. So this is true with God. And one of the big problems I've had when pastors and others have asked me, what about the Bible? Because we spent a good 57 years just looking at God in those things. One pastor said, look, I've been praying for revival for 15 years. I had all my church praying and nothing seemed to happen. So I'm kind of ticked off at God. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to pray anymore, especially not talk about revival. I said, what were you praying for? We're praying for revival. And I said, no wonder you're not answered. You're actually praying for the wrong thing. And they're looking at me like totally shocked. And I said, you're like people who want to find a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And only leprechauns know where that is. And you, have, you don't know any leprechauns. But the point is you're praying for something that you haven't seen, but you've got in your mind a record probably from history or maybe from the things that happened earlier for you and you think revival is God doing exactly what he did then but when you see what he makes and what he does and he says this if you want to know what I'm like study what I made and he could have added and see if you can do something like that and when you look at what I've made then you'll understand why people are to fear me he is most terrifying being in the universe the funniest and the happiest and all of these things can happen in a real revival almost in that order. The wonderful thing about this simple deal, I've done a section on this, and I, I can show you little bits of it. It's called Seven Shocking Things About Revival. And I put this together because Mario visited us here and he was supposed to speak to some pastors. And he said, I'm not going to come to New Zealand unless I can talk to Winky. Those nice pastors invited me to come with Mario. And Mario gave me one of his sessions. And that's the material I put together is called Seven Shocking Things About Revival. The point is this, if we want a revival, then we are not to pray for revival. It's not that it's wrong, but it's meaningless. It's like praying for finding out whether a person can jump out of a 15-story building and fly. You can't do it. Superman might be able to do it, but you can't do it. 
When God does something, he never does it twice. Often the common elements that happen, these are the rules, if you like, what he says in his word he is like and what he wants us to do. So my boil down for, uh, for somebody who wants to become a Christian is this. God is only asking us for two simple things. First of all, to really understand who he is. And that's simply the fear of the Lord. You will not see a revival. You will not see a real change until we return to a genuine fear of the Lord. When people talk as if God's just Santa Claus or something, or some dumb idea that only children can have, and when they get older, they get past all that rubbish, like they said in Charles Finney's day. And that's not really the truth of it all. And I was thinking of Moses, who prayed this dumb prayer. So nobody in this podcast has to pray. He said, show me your face. That's what Moses prays to the God who made the world. And he goes, show me your face. And God looks at him, and this is a Texas way to say it, but you understand this. I know he would have said this to Moses in Hebrew. Bless your heart, which is a nice way of saying what an idiot. Bless your heart. But anyway, he said, nobody can see my face in there. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you on a crack in the rock, and you probably made it there for him. And you'll just see my afterglow, but you will not see my face. No man can look at my face in there. And Moses then jammed into that little crack as the, the one who made the world passes before him. I know if he's hiding his face when that happens, because when he came down from the mountains, his face glowed so much they were afraid of him. I know what he's thinking. I am the stupidest guy in the world, and I will never pray this prayer again, because the one who just made the world went past. And I thought I could just go and have a look and have a little chat with him and see how things are. And he's not like that. And every revival must be preceded by the fear of the Lord. When he asked, what did God give to Israel? And the first thing he told them, and everybody who knows how wonderful God is and how kind he is and everything else, said, he, he said to love me. And I said, yeah, that's absolutely true, but it's not the first thing. The first thing he ever gave Israel was fear me. And we can see it today. If you had to teach a class full of rotten kids that are all hell's angels and would hate you, think, you don't get up and go, oh, today I'm your new teacher. I'd like to share with you a few kind things. You know, nice. You just simply say, I'm God. You know, This is what you really are. And don't screw my life up because you're not going to be alive for very long. When you see what he really is, you're amazed, first of all, that it's real. C.S. Lewis used to talk, it's, it's like getting on a boat and wondering if there's any fish. You throw out your little thing and a huge thing comes much bigger than your boat right underneath that boat when you're hoping to pull it up. And then you realize, oh shoot, can we row back quickly and not be around? And every awakening that happens, every real change, when you first see what God is like, it terrifies people. And I've seen it with kids that are smoking, and then they sometimes, in the old days, sometimes they'd cry, sometimes they'd scream, sometimes they'd be weeping for days at a time because they suddenly realize, shoot, it's real. And I've screwed my life up totally. When they know that, they realize the second thing. There's no way I can ever be saved or forgiven or changed. It's just no way. Mm. My life is so unlike what it is supposed to be. And whether you're a mass murderer or just a dumb kid, that's still the same. The feeling is the same. And so when people think of the fear of the Lord, often they'll think, well, that's not really fear. Not like, ah, not that kind of fear. It's like, 
No, isn't it lovely? It's how reverent we should. It's not that. It's exactly the other one. You want a simple illustration of this? It's when he's on the boat. No, it's two times. He's on the boat in this one. And Peter, you know, Peter thinks of himself, and you may be the Messiah and be God and stuff, but I know fish and I know fishing and I'm really good and this my boat. And he's there this time, not the one where he's up in the mountain and they have this terrifying storm come, like Peter there. They're all going to die. They realize that. That storm is so freaking scary at that time. We're going to flat die. And where's Jesus? He's up on the mountain praying or something. And then he sees in the storm this figure and it's coming towards the boat, white of course, <laughs> and he thinks, shoot, that, what is that thing? It, that's a guy, a scary ghost or something's coming right towards us. And he's terrified. And then he hears a voice coming from it. And he thinks that, well, that sounds like Jesus, but how could that be He's on the water? You know? And then he goes, if that's really you, this always happens in every real revival, this kind of, if that really you, then prove it like, um, let me come to you the way you're coming to me. Like, that. Uh, it's not real, it's some fantasy. And then the scariest thing of all, come. So at that point, you're like Moses stuck in the crack. You realize it really is him. And now he's asking me to come. It's one thing to put one foot over the side of the boat, as long as you've got the other foot in there and still holding on, to even put two feet over and maybe hold on with your hands. Or if you're really strong, put two feet over hanging <laughs> above that water and then one foot there and the other foot's beside it and then one hand is still holding on to the boat but when you let go of the boat that's the time you realize you've got it you've taught us a lot of things but i still remember it's like my mother my father people like yourself who have invested in our lives are in my thoughts so when i say things i remember you saying it like he is god and i am not and you were also talking about and you've taught us Charles Finney. And you talked about in the Billy Graham crusade that you were talking about, you put all that together. And at the same time, you had said that 80% of the people at that time coming to those crusades were not staying true to their commitment or to their statement of faith. Charles Finney, you taught us, was the opposite. 80% of the people that came to his meetings walked in this place of the holiness, consecration of God, purpose of God, and stayed true to that. Charles Finney would say, revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat. Yeah. So the real miracle is not the revival itself. The real miracle is the seed that goes beneath the surface and it comes to life because God does something so providential and divine. Yeah, that's really true. At the core of that too, in Finney's time, of course, the people who most said this isn't it were the religious people. The pagans all got saved all over the place. Because they, they just thought, oh, it's just rubbish, and then it happened. And they thought, oh, a wonderful thing that I have, and I'm happy to send it to you. It's kind of rare, but it is the 100th anniversary of Oberlin College, which Fanny was president of. And he's buried there, you know, he's not, not in the college. But at the 100th anniversary of Oberlin, they asked Charles Finney's uh, oldest grandson if he would come and speak for him. So this is, uh, you know, close to 100 or more years ago now, but he came and for a whole hour he spoke. And this is one of the scariest little sermons that I've ever seen. His first statement was trying to describe to people what they thought revival was, and I briefly mentioned it. It's something for children and they believe that thing. And this, we're talking about scientists and lawyers and all kinds of smart and brilliant people professors and stuff, their idea was, it's nice, but it's a child's toy. But Charles Finney didn't get saved as a child. 
he was close to 30 when he first came in confrontation with the real God. And when we have some of the biography that we have, it's quite surprising. The reason I mention him is this, that when Finney's grandson, so I know some of them are probably thinking he's probably going to talk about the chicks that Finney had on the side or the drugs that he used, <laughs> the kind of things that people would ask, oh yeah, you're religious, but we all know what that is. You're just as screwed up as we are. But, but he didn't talk about that. He said, I'm going to tell you. And here's one of the statements, and this shocked me when I said, and it should shock anybody. He said, uh, nobody has ever been able to. No one ever recorded. To rec there was no recording in those days, of course. You had to hand do it. There was no tapes or videos or any of the things we're doing here. Nobody has ever been, or was like being able to record any of my grandfather's sermon. So people who have read Finney's writings and works are thinking like this. What is he talking about? That's idiot. There's tons and tons of stuff that we have with Finney until I realized what they're actually talking about. They had in July 4th an equivalent of the Olympic Games for each state had In one. Finney's time. In Finney's time, yeah. There's four young people. Many young people competed in that one. And Finney was a young man, six foot three in his stocking feet. He went in all of the competition. And here's the wild thing. He won all of them. He doesn't mention that. Only one time he ever said that no man could knock his hat off, outrun him, outwrestle him, outjump him. Out out throw him. Out throw him. And he just said that. It's not a boast. It was a statement. When you realize how in the fact could a person win all of those things when he's never competed in them before? So he had great natural ability. Natural ability yeah, was astonishing. Which, which he didn't his, smoke. He didn't drink. He was not screwing around with people's lives. He's not Christian at all. And his confrontation that came with God changed his until whole that, life. Until that night that Jesus walked in the room of his office. Yes. <laughs> and we look at this now, we think, okay, then Charles Finney was speaking to a whole lawyer school. And the reason they'd asked him is not because they were all cynics and didn't believe in God or anything, but they thought this guy, was, he's a lawyer, he's supposed to be a young lawyer like us. And Let's invite him. We'll just see how good he is and stuff. And so the guy, the professor, was over this major law school. I think there was at least 80 students there. may have been higher than that. He invited them and he said, we've got a whole day, so you can take whatever time you want and uh, we'll just listen to you. So Finney got up and he spoke for five hours. Nobody moved and nobody left. Try that now. See how you do now with that. And I thought, well, because when... Somebody, halfway through his life, somebody asked, we don't even know who you are. We need to have a, like a little biography of who you are. He said, no. Finally, they said, well, what if we get somebody just to write stuff up? A lady was a very good writer. And so she did six months research to get this little first chunk of Finney's life. And when he saw it, this is what he said. He was shocked when he picked it up. And he said, this is about me. She would have said, well, of course it's about you. It's a biography. He said, this is not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about Christ. And he burned it. He burned the whole six months of her work. He just burned it. He did not want it to happen. And it wasn't until he's, you see the pictures and he looks, his eyes are pretty burned out and he looks older and stuff that one of his best friends said, I'm going to do it. You know, I'll, I'll do it. And that's the only biography of Finney's that we've ever had. But this is wow. the shocking thing. When he spoke at that, how do you speak for five hours without notes? 
you and I know what it is to speak for long times and all you friends that are out there who are involved in ministry, you know what you need in order to talk for a day or maybe an hour or something. But what happens when the person who's speaking is not even using notes? So I thought, what kind of atmosphere must have happened there for nobody to get up and go, oh, this is bull and I'm, I'm out of here? They're all there. And the most amazing thing is, almost all of them get saved. And the first one that gets saved is the professor who invited him. He gets on his knees and he gives his life to Christ. Finney's opening statement on that was, what I'm going to say today, you may analyze all of this if you like. So if what I say today is not true, then I will quit what I'm doing and I'll join you in whatever you want to do. And I've heard you use a line similar in some of your uh, altar calls. <laughs> and, then, and then he said, but if it's true, you need to give your life to Christ. Right. And the wildest thing is the first guy who comes is the professor in charge of the school. And when the guy wrote down, he said that, a number of them got saved, almost 85% of them gave their lives to the Lord. There was only a couple that didn't get saved. And we're talking about brilliant, highly trained people who thought revival is a child's play. I remember you taught us that, and this really set me free, because with all the preparation we do and all the study we do, we need to bring it before the presence and altar of God, between before a holy, holy, holy God. That's and when you shared about preparation, but then speak like Charles Finney extemporaneously, because it needs to come from our spirit and not from our head. And that really set me free many years ago, because I have a tendency to prepare, 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 but then I get up to speak, and I push my notes aside, and I just speak extemporaneously. And that seems like yeah. those are the most powerful times. Yeah. But something else you said was that there are people, because Jesus says the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. He's the way out of our Egypt, or out of the world. He's the truth at Mount Sinai, and he's the, the life in the promised land. And sometimes he has to take us out of our world or out of our Egypt into yes. the desert to get the world out of us before we go possess the land. And That's you, right. Because yeah. we're moving into revival. So touch on, on that because you've written so many things. Youth of Flame is still a classic. I have It's so encouraging. So many young people today are now picking that up and still gleaning from that. And we have a whole new generation of next geners that are grasping Keith Green music and Winky Prattney's teachings. And, and it encourages me, uh, Leonard Ravenhill, there, it encourages me that there is hope for the future. You really are a, a revivalist. You're, you're a revival primer. You've uh, given us a passion for God's presence. Because you used to say also, as you and Leonard Ravenhill, you'd say, Always take God serious, but never take yourself so serious. <laughs> and I've had to apply that in my life. You know, I'm a jokester, you know, because I yeah. want to make sure I don't take myself so serious, but I want to take the things of God so serious. Would you touch on how so many people are still stuck in the desert because they haven't allowed the Lord to take Egypt out of them? We were good friends with Leonard, you know, and um, David Raven, of course, one of his wonderful sons not only lived here for a whole chunk of time, but he was also a person very passionate about revival. But remember too, in that area in Lindale, where when we were in the US, we stayed and lived in that area. He just lived down the road. He moved from where he was to hang out with David Wilkerson and with other friends. You've been to some of those wonderful, and we were there because Leonard had a two or three hour prayer meeting once a month, and those wasn't a general invitation, but a whole bunch of crazy people <laughs> would go there to, to just hang out with this incredible man of God. 
I knew Leonard well. I went to his funeral and, and also his wife. They were good friends. And as you said, he was funny, but scary. He's not the laughing preacher. It's you, you crying, <laughs> crying audience and that thing. But one thing that his wife said to me, uh, there was, when he died, there was only one thing that he was disappointed with. Not just the church, because often he saw how screwed up we were and how far away we were from what God said. She said he always wanted to live long enough to see the next revival. When she said that, I thought, I know why he was a bit disappointed. He thought the next revival he would recognize instantly because it was exactly the, what happened to him. But mm. he never does the same thing twice. Mm. And the best way to see that when we look at what he made, because remember he says, if you want to know what I'm like, and I mentioned this earlier to us, if you want to know what I'm like, study what I've made. And he's talking about the heavens and all of these things. So when you do that, you see a very simple thing. When God creates something, there's a structure to it. You know, all snowflakes have the same structure, but no snowflake is ever alike. We've got ones in New Zealand, if we occasionally have snow and they come down, the edges of them have little ferns on them. Who teaches water how to make a fern, which is one of the major deals of stuff. So if you're a surfer, you have never been through and never been on a sea that has had the same way. Just look at the clouds. You've never seen an identical set of clouds or sunrises. Nothing is ever done the same. You have never met a person, even if they're identical twins, that is actually identical. Because everything he makes, so it has a fundamental structure. What Tesla used to say, everything has a frequency, it has a color, and it has a shape. And none of them are the same. So it's like it with us. If you take uh, photographs of people, then you can photocopy them. That's a replica. But it's like me asking you, or, or you ask me, what is, what is your wife like? And I showed you a picture of Faye. I can't say this is Faye, because it's not Faye. It was Faye in a microsecond when that picture took place. And all the ones afterwards and all the ones before are slightly different. It's the same with revivals. If we go to God and we're asking him to do what we think he should do, because we know what it is, because we, we're very smart, <laughs> We know all of these things and we've read and studied it. What we don't realize is the next one you don't even know what he's going to do. And he doesn't have to show you. And we're really ticked if he doesn't. But if you pray for revival meaning in your own thought, we want that pot of gold. We're not after the pot of gold. We're not after even the rainbow. We're after the one who makes the rainbow. And when he shows up, he can show up any way he wants. We're just happy to get hold of the hem of this garment, wherever he's going, and hold on as best as we can. And if people ask you, what is the revival going to be like, brother? <laughs> what does the next revival look like? I, said, I haven't got a clue. And don't be shocked about that, because the disciples said to Jesus, when are you coming back? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> it's in my father's hands. Look, if Jesus isn't sure when his father's coming back, and he's God talking to God, then why are you so and when you're saying, well, why didn't he do something? It's terrible and horrible things are happening. Why doesn't God just come in and kill all the bad guys and keep us? Wakey, because this is a great point you're making, because if we're looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you're saying that really, it's not that it's wrong to pray for revival, but it's that we're missing the point. It's kind of like worshiping Bethel 
rather than the El Bethel, the God of the house. And, <laughs> and we worship so much of the institution. We've worshiped so much of the styles of worship. Yeah. And yet we've forgotten the God of the house. And yeah, yeah. even Duncan Campbell in the Great Hebrides Revivals, When he was quoted in defining what revival is, he was actually quoting, I believe it was Thomas Chalmers. Uh, He said, revival is the impact of the personality of Christ on a community. So somehow when God shows up, or even as Duncan Campbell talked about, you know, when God rends the skies and God comes down, there's something that happens that only God can do. As you would say, God is God and we are not. So God shows up in this providential, powerful moment. And things change, but it may not look the way we expected it. You've experienced so many moves of God and revivals. You've been a part of God Force, Youthquake, and of course, uh, the Olsons are on, and they were a part of uh, Buddy Hick, Dr. Buddy Hicks's ministry, oh, yeah. Youthquake, and of course, Agape Force, and, and we've all interfaced, but you've been a part of so many movements of God, and you've been able to stay focused and tethered to the purposes of God and not being moved by every new movement or things that ebb and flow. How have you been able to do that to keep your focus? And how do we then see the tangibility of Christ show up in a community when revival really shows up? The problem with us too, Doug, is that we have a box for our picture of God. He doesn't have any boxes at all. Our problem is that at least we think we know how he's going to do things because he's given us a book. The book is a record of the, but when we look at that record, we see this, here's David. We know that he took a giant out. Here he is, takes a whole giant out with, with from a couple of rocks. When we look at Scientific American, we see that sling, which we think is it's kind of a dumb thing to throw, had the same impact in those days as a 45 Magnum. And it was one of the most powerful weapons a person could have before the invention of the crossbow. So he takes the giant out. Now, you think if the Philistines lose their number one dude, he's got some brothers, they could bring them in too, that they would be afraid to come back to take on David again. But they do. The Philistines are like Klingons. Today is a good day to die. You know, they, that's the kind of thing they do. So they come back to fight him again. Now, you and I would think, okay, it's the rocks. Get the rocks. And even if he brings his brothers, you've got a few more rocks. So get the rocks, and that's how you take out the Philistines. But that's not what David does. He asks God, what am I going to do? And he says, when you hear the sound of the going or the blowing of the mulberry trees, then go up against them and you'll win. And he does, and he wins, just like God said. So the Philistines are freaked out. We were looking for the rock, and then this wind blew, and he took us out another way. See, they don't know what he's going to do, but they think they do. And then... How dumb can you get? They attack him again. Why? They lost the last two. Don't you think they'd go, stay away from David. We've got to fight everybody else. Stay away from this dude because he's just too dangerous. What does David do? He go, okay, now I'll get the wind, get the rocks, and uh, I'll take both of those. Hope the wind blows and I'll get the rocks. He doesn't. He asks him again. And again, God tells him something different. So why should it shock us? When God tells us something different to win against the enemies we're facing. The idea of the box is this. If I ask people when God made everything, as he did, you know, and he invents stuff, he invents water, and then he talks to it. We think that's a nice metaphor. It's real. Water does really understand when people talk. Are you joking? No, I'm not joking. It is tested. 
he really does make something, we'll put it like this, very quick one. In order to have something big enough, powerful enough to give you a brain, even if it's a small brain, you have to have certain things that are able to handle large molecules, all right? We only know three of those things. One of them silicon. That's why we're talking on television stuff. All of this. This is mostly silicon. Different ways and forms of it. Carbon is another one. You can build incredible things with carbon. That's another invention of God. Okay? Very simple one. There it is. Third one is water. Water is so unlike anything else. Everything else, when it gets cold, it gets heavier. With water, it gets heavier, heavier, heavier and as it's going towards ice, it's lighter. And it floats. And that's why all the fish are alive when it's winter, because they're not taken frozen from the bottom up. They're frozen just at the top, which protects it. That's only true with water. So when he does these simple things like this, looking at something simple, he talks to water and he says, make stuff. And water does. It makes all kinds of cool things. Then he talks to the dirt, which he also invented. Make stuff and animals and stuff. We all think that's, that's just a, a lovely idea. Wait till you see the real God and what he can do. We know now with nanotechnology what can be built. We're doing the wrong thing with the wrong stuff to find out what it's supposed to be because we're not smart enough yet to know the consequences of things like that. So the reason I'm telling all of that is when I ask people what did God make first? And he makes the universe. It's big stuff. It's just like fireworks and stuff. Then he makes Earth, which is astonishing. Then he does something pretty wild. He makes a man, and the man is not alive, but it's the most astonishing, most amazing thing in the universe, other than the nature of God himself, is the human body. But the wild thing is, it's not alive. So then he takes this form and he breathes on it, and it becomes a living being. And that's how Jesus dies. He gives up his breath, same word that is used, his breath, his spirit, gives it up, and then... He dies, really dies, seriously dies, and then he comes back again. So all of these areas that the way God does things, it's never the same, it's always unique, it's always amazing, but it has common elements in it. So when we're looking for things like revival, we should ask them, what are the common elements, if you like, the structures of things in which God works? And we will always see those same repetitions. The fear of the Lord will come, people are terrified, then they realize it's hopeless, I'm a mess, I can never be changed, I didn't realize how bad I was. And then, for some strange reason, the one who made the world actually will talk to you and actually change you. And then for the first time, you know what happy really is. Always the same. I could just jump in, so to go back to Doug's question, is that it sounds like what you're saying is that there are many strategies, but we still have to seek the Lord for the specific one at yeah. each occasion to win the battle. That was a good illustration you just gave. You also quoted A.W. Tozier earlier, and I remember he did something on self. And one of the things he said was, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. Wow. And in your book, Revival, you put A.W. Tozier defined revival as that which changes the moral climate of a community. And uh, Duncan Campbell also said that it takes the supernatural to break the bonds of the natural. Mm. And so there are things that cannot be changed without the manifestation of a holy and powerful God. Yeah. And we, with all the ills that we have in the world today and all that we have going on in our, the country I live here, the United States, mm. there's so many things happening, but it takes a move of God, one of those suddenly moments 
like in Acts 2 or like the Jesus movement or like so many other movements you've been a part of. Yes. We need one of those sovereign moves of God that may not look like what it looked like before, but we need God to show up. That's absolutely true. And that, that thing I mentioned that I put together, and I can send it to you and anybody who wants it, we just don't post it on Facebook in, in case somebody steals it and runs off it. <laughs> but if we look at those, I call them seven shocking things, because they really are shocking to us. Say, for instance, you and I have read the scriptures, we've read it a lot of times. I can see just looking at your library now, that you're a man who learns also from what is written. Yeah. You're also a man because of what the changes and transformations God's made in your life. You're also a man who has not just the science of the thing, but the beauty of the thing. You have the art of the thing. Those both sit in a person's life. And we've, in our time, we've separated. Sciences are here and arts and entertainment somewhere else, but not to God. When, that's why he makes gold candlesticks when he's talking to Aaron. There's seven of them there. Seven of those sticks. Why didn't he just do two or like the Satanists do, do these two like this with like little horns? Why is it seven that he does? It's because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a trinity, three. And the things that he makes, the earth or all the creation, east, west, north, south, what the Bible calls the corners of the earth. He makes a box, if you like. It has a structure, but it is not eternal. It's not everlasting. That's four of those and three of those, you put them together and you have the Creator and His creation. He's telling Aaron, he's a little bit older than Moses, he's three, three years older, but he's been given the job of being in charge of the worship and also being in charge of the work of being a follower of the Lord. He asks him, tells Moses, tell him to make this. And he makes this gold thing, which is still in use in Israel, probably not solid gold anymore. But it's that seven-fold thing. Because in looking at that thing, you see two things. You see the beauty of it, the art of it, because it's gorgeous. Why don't you make it out of mud or dirt or just a piece of wood? It's made specially. It has chemistry. It has physics in it. It has structures in it. But it also is beautiful, and it's gorgeous, and it's amazing to look at, especially when it's lit. So those statements that God makes and the things that he leaves that will still be there thousands of years later for people to look at, all point to who he is. And the bottom line is this. When my friend that had spent a lot of time in China was suddenly given a task which he didn't know what to do with, they asked him to speak with a collection of almost a thousand scientists, physicists, all kinds of amazing people. And he had no clue what he was supposed to do because he's not a scientist. He's not a, you know, none of those things. So he asked the Lord, what do you want me to talk about? Which is a wonderful thing for all of us to do. Ask God what he wants you to do, not what you thought you could do. Because when he visited, nobody read Bibles, were allowed Bibles. It was forbidden to use the word God in any of the statements. So all you're given, you couldn't even use a computer, you couldn't carry anything like that with you. He was just given a, a scribble tablet and a, and a pencil. And that's what everybody has. So he's going to... He's trying to talk to all these people and they've asked him to share for an hour. And so he asked the Lord, what do you want me to talk about? And God said, tell them what you were and tell them what you are now. What mm. you did then and what you did now. That's it. He didn't have a Bible. He just, he just said this thing. So he gets up. Remember, he's not allowed to use God or Jesus or talk about anything like that. For an hour, he talks a bit. This is what I was like. 
and this is what I meant. This is what I did. This is what I did then. And the last statement, the thing is, I might even get put in prison for saying this. He said, "You big, all of you had a lot of money invested in your lives to get you to the place where you are. You've done all. People have looked so much put into your life. What have you done with the gifts that God has given you?" And that was the end of his thing. Wow. That was the end of his deal. And people started to cry. And the people stood up and clapped and cheered. And they came to him later that day and said, we're all out of, of the recordings of what you spoke on. That's more of those than all of the others that have spoken but together. And he's looking and said, what, what, what are you talking about? He didn't know what he's talking about. They said, don't you know? He said, well, you know, he thought, well, it wasn't that great a deal. The one that was his interpreter said, I felt like my something was running down on the inside of my hand like oil. And she said, and others felt that same thing. And I started to cry. And the, what was happening was a visitation of the Holy Spirit right then. So th this is what he's saying. The whole thing is this, just trust him. Just trust him. He knows what he's doing. That one block of time, I can't tell you all the details of this because they're still building what they're building. Right there in the middle of that huge area, revival took place some years ago. There's another one coming. Well, Winky, you have done so much study, research, experience, moves of God. When I think about even the Welsh revivals or Azusa Street or the, the latter rain movement, the Jesus movement and other things that have happened, the prayer meeting revivals of 1857 in New York City. And in fact, it was Tim Delina, our friend Tim Delina, that took me to meet with Arnold Dalforth up in Canada before he passed. And he wrote many, many books, a Baptist uh, theologian. But he wrote a book called The Forerunner to the Pentecostal Movement. And he talked about not just Evans Roberts of the Welsh Revivals, but he talked about 100 years before in Wales, where it was Edward Irving was really the forerunner. So we look at all these moves of God historically. And then we look at even, I was jotting these notes down last night. And when I think about Dr. Buddy Hicks, and when I think about David Wilkerson and Leonard Ravenhill and all that happened with Last Days Ministries and Calvary Commission, Agape Force, and uh, all these great ministries that migrated towards Lindell and Garden Valley. There was something about life-defining moments where there has been an atmosphere created individually and corporately for God to show up. What do you think it takes in these kinds of moves throughout history, but now even today, what are the commonalities that attracted the presence of God that we need today that maybe is lacking? So that you mentioned Tozer again, that statement that he made, because he's a very godly man, Tozer, and he and Raven worked together. You knew that a lot of times and, and knew each other's lives very much. That whole thing about just really seeking God rather than seeking what God did, looking at the one who did the thing, not what it was that he did as being the big deal. Those big deals, he may make other rainbows, but I don't think he will. <laughs> the ones that are going on all the time, those are good enough, but they're not a different kind of rainbow. They're not a rainbow that comes down and sets you on fire. That's a different kind of rainbow. So when we're looking at what should we do in our lives that will be something that would open those doors, if we just look at what he's done before, because we know we were there in it. 
But that is also one of the last things that I put in that deal. We know what revival is, is what it says. We were there, we saw it, so we know what it is. But in the back of our minds is, that's what I want to see again. What if he doesn't do that? What if he does something totally different? Will you recognize it? The greatest opposition to the next revival is the backslidden fruit of the one that went before. Wow, that's good. But it's true. It's like we think we know because always this thing takes the place of this place. He's looking for the heart. He doesn't ask you for your brain. He's not, he doesn't need to do that. He wants your heart. And here's, here's the other base of that thing. When God can find a person who is willing to do anything at all without God making him do it, that is a very key thing. So I'll, gi I'll give you this because I think it'll be good for, for the PowerPoint thing. I haven't written about this or anything yet. I asked people, this was last year, I asked the Lord, why do you like the church so much? This is the book. You've seen, some of you have seen this one. Yeah. When I died in Korea, it was in 2007, around Easter time. I died and it wasn't a, a good long death. I couldn't tell you about heaven and hell and in other places visiting and stuff. But I did and he brought me back again, which was really nice of him. And I've had three, two other things. So I've had practice in dying and you know, I'm still here. In that, I asked the Lord, first main one was, what do you do that isn't religious? Because I'm not working with people that are all religious. I'm working with college students and professors and scientists and other people that aren't religious at all. So they love what they're doing, but they, they don't necessarily love anything religious. So I'm asking, what do you do that isn't religious, knowing that he could do anything? Dorothy Sayers said, if you want to be globally good at anything, you have to have at least one of three things. Number one is English. If you don't know English, you won't be globally good. You mean awesome at what you do, but you have to have English too. Number two, you have to be good also at theology. I'm not talking about a book of theology. That's what Tose is not talking about, a book of something. Books are great, but we're actually looking at the guts of what that is. When we're talking about theology, we're talking about all of the descriptions that God has given or shown us or different ways of what he is and what he did. So each one of these covers everything. English is a language, strange, weird language. You can talk about anything or sing about anything or act about anything or make movies about anything using that. Number two. Theology, you have to know what reality looks like from the actual creator and maker of it and all that is done around that. So that's why I went to the seventh thing and mentioned that to you. God, the creator, and the creation. There's four on that bottom, three on the top, together they form seven. But you can't worship the four. You've got to not take the creation and put it first in your life. The creator. The creation is what you know about this. You're not going to know all the things about him at all. So those are these. Now, coming back to this question, I asked God, what do you do that isn't religious? That was a one, and there was a 2A and a 2B to that question. The second 2A was, if you're showing me something in your book, that's the scriptures, the Bible that I'm reading, how do I know it's you? How do I know it's not? I had pizza last night, and this is a great idea I had. How do I know it's you? Showing me something. Maybe it's just a verse. Maybe it's a maybe it's just a word. How will I know that it's really you? I've got to know. Okay, I'm showing you something. So just watch. Two B would be okay. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. How do I know what this means? We all got John three sixteen. We're saved, and all the football fans can still hold it up. You know, but what we don't get good at is some of the other verses and stuff. So 
The third one that Sayers said, which I really loved and didn't know why, is chemistry. And I thought, why chemistry? I love chemistry. I was really good at chemistry and English. Those are the two good things I was really good at. Why those two? And then I realized chemistry is about everything, just like the other two are. So you're looking at three things that if you hang on, just even know one of them, globally, what you do can be known and seen in anything, which are wonderful. So we put all these together and we come back to God. When I asked him that question, I thought he might show me enough to maybe show 10 pages in a 600-page book. It's supposed to be this, a second volume of Nature and Character of God. The first one, second, and Nature and Character of God was the intrinsic qualities of God. What he is, the things we can't get behind, what Francis Schaeffer used to call the absolutes of wonder. He's the triune, uncreated creator. Those just three describe the Bible God. So I thought maybe he's going to show me about up, maybe even 10 pages of stuff in this different one. It's called Nature and Character of God, not because we're running out of answers and stuff. It's just that he's in everything. And we need to have a different way of describing the second part, which is if you want to know what I'm like, study what I've made. When we're in those situations with God and we're really asking him, what is he like? I thought there might be those 10 pages. You know how big this thing is. This is 880 pages. I can't fit this into the second volume of the nature and character of God. And it is shocking to me because 40 of these, these 40, none of these are religious, none of them, but they're all given by God. So here's the weird thing. For 2000 years now, we've had clergy laity ideas. God is like this, he's the religious one, you see that? And then the laity, the clergy clergy, that's what we're really good at, especially if you're clergymen. We're not really good at being the laity, except the laity don't do anything except pay the clergy to clergy. Then, then we're really good at that. So what we've tried to do when we've seen the things we're good at is to take all of the things and make sure we've got the names for all the things. If you're really Christian, you would have a name of one evangelist, missionary, revivalist, worship leader. You know, we've got those. There's a small number of them there, but they're there and real. And God really loves these things. So what does he do with all the other things? So for 2,000 years now, we've said, okay, he's looking like, I wish, it's a pity you're just a lawyer, like Charles Finney, you know. He, he became a real Christian because he got saved and then he started, gave up his law practicing. So it's a, it's a pity you never became an evangelist. But because you're saved and you got baptized and you still pay tithes, uh, then I will help you in whatever this is you're doing. That's our idea of what it's like with God. So we try to take all of these big things, huge things. He showed me 40 things. That's not all there is. He just showed me 40. He's taken 880 pages, not to do all of the verses on it, just to understand what he's talking about. It. I think when you see it like this, why did we try to pack all of these people that aren't religious at all, no interest in religious things, but love what they're doing, and it surprised them, like Michael Jackson's family. What he had didn't come from his family. He knows it. He died knowing that. You can pick anybody's life who was a world changer, and you'll see something amazing in their life. And almost never is it just a dynasty thing. Oh, this was this, we were all singers, we all did this, and that's true. That may be true. This is something else. And about maybe high school times, 
you start realizing, I like this, and I'm not even sure why I'm good at it. And you could add, I'm not even sure how I got it. You're actually looking at a facet of God's own character that he invests in our lives. Then he watches to see what we're going to do. So in that, the surprise and shock of it to me was, there is so many people that aren't religious. They have no religious background at all. And if you talk to them about that, you'll use a box. Here's, here's the box I'm going to give you. When he made the man, what, what did he make the second thing? Why didn't he make a, a, a building for him? Call it a church. Why didn't he give him the things that we think have to be in order for a person to get saved? Why didn't he do that? Because he's giving people. So I ask him, what is the first thing God made even before he made us? And it's not the universe. That, that's all there. He planted a garden. Why didn't he talk a garden? He talked everything else. Why did he talk? Why didn't he just talk a garden? Garden B, and there it is. Because he's the gardener. The investment he made in that, in people's lives, is almost half of how the Bible is written. All of the things have agricultural and gardening type lands, all of these different areas are fundamental to what he is. Jobs that he calls you to, that uh, those things have their fundamental nature rooted in, in God himself. Your specific question, Doug, was on the grounds and conditions that are for um, seen for revival. Hmm. And he's worked very hard for the last 10 or 15 minutes trying not to put everything into a box so the audience doesn't think, okay, you have to fit it within these grounds and conditions. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's talked about how um, God is bigger than our, all our boxes. Don't expect that he's going to use the same set, even of all the, the, good the studies that Wiki's done, his 21CR series, which, which really would give 16 grounds and conditions for revival. Yeah. If, People wanted to download that from wikipratney.net, it's there. But I think he's worked specifically so that he would not have your audience pinned into a box, that God is bigger than our boxes and he can use us in any way that he's called us. That we wouldn't have to just pay attention to this teaching or that teaching, but that, that we could be used in any way that God wants to give that specific strategy to us, to our, us individually and to us in, in our ministries. But for those that are looking for that thing, that 40 years of research into revival and reformation, they go to winkypratney.com, they look for 21st century reformer. The 16 principles are there. There, It's a free 56-page outline for the conference notes. And if you still want more, there's, there's the videos, there's the audio, there's, you know, there's PowerPoints. But he doesn't want people to be boxed into even his teachings. He wants people, it's a, he's a living God, and we can all tap in for a specific strategy for our lives, for our ministries, and it's not going to be the same right. as it was before. It's not going to be the same as it was with Finney. It's not going to be. There are principles, but if people try to fit within that that box, then they're already going to their head instead of just following God purely from the heart. You saw this, Doug, by the way, too, in, in Lauren Cunningham. Uh, you know, YOM, and then also Bill Bright. At the same time, roughly in that same year, God gave them the same thing. So he used to say when more than one person see the star, you know there's something up. And it was the mountains. They used the mountains and they saw huge areas that God is investing in. And now I think in the early days they had like seven, now they've got at least 12 and they should have probably more, closer to 12 than just the seven. But anyway, I think we saw that two men with the same gifting 
given, God speaking to them about something, both mind-blowing, world-changing people, how much alike they were. We knew them both. Campus Crusader, why were the amazing thing? But to see those two not talking to each other with the same word, we realized God is stressing something. So when I found this, I don't know what to call it. I don't even know what to call it. It's not absolutes of wonder. It is, I just call it spiritual vocations. That there are real gifts that he gives that we've... And, and the shocking one for me, of course, was two in the morning and I'm talking to God. None of this is like us talking this way. He knows what we're thinking. And we, if we listen long enough, we'll know what he's saying to us. So I'm there, it's two in the morning, and I'm saying to the Lord, but he's shown me funny stuff, stuff I never heard about, stuff that isn't in this library of 12,000 books and stuff. I've never heard anybody preach on this. I haven't. I've never seen it before. I'm sure. That's what he asked him. Well, look at that. See? So I'm almost laughing, and I say to him, what else do you make that isn't religious? And he said, I am an entertainer. That shocked me so much. I, I went like this. No way. I said it out loud. No way. And he said it like this. I am an entertainer. You've got to really think when you see that pause. I am an entertainer. You never screw with that I am. You never, never reinterpret it. He am what he am. And he said it like that. So now I'm freaked. So I tell my computer, look for this. So a little while later, not long, maybe a minute or two, 36 pages show up in the computer. And I'm looking at that and it is mind-blowing. And then I thought, how come I haven't heard anything about this? We put people in jail or out of, we kick them out of the church if they're entertainers because they may screw with our children and they all become you know, wicked and Babylonian like all entertainers have to be, see? But to discover not only that, but that is besides God, one, two, and then his creation, two, see? and then three, salvation, bringing the two together there. There is a fourth, and it's entertainment. It is the fourth largest study in the Bible, and that's mind-blowing. Because I'm thinking, where's that been all my life? That's what I was good at in the time, like those things too. But that nothing to do with God. So that's why I asked God last year, it's been a long time, why do you love the church so much? You've done so much with these other things. How about 40 things compared with 12? Why did he put so much attention? And I'm in the church, you're in the church, we are part of the church. Why did he do that? You know, there's a lot of material. You helped compile the Revival Study Bible. I know there was like was oh, over 1,700 writings in here and teachings and contributing things. And I don't know how, but I was very humbled that you had included me as one of the contributing people of this Bible. But how can people find out more about this Bible and how we can be praying? Because we really need to get this message out. And you no longer have the CD-ROM, but it's now you can get a code and actually get all the writings. That's right. Well, we do need prayer for the project. Doug, basically, we are terrible at fundraising. That's not our area or marketing. And it took our secretary nine months of work just to raise money for 1,500 copies of that Bible. And as I understand, there's less than 300 left. In so we can't tell US. everybody, oh, God, 
quickly get it. In New Zealand, we've got less than 300 copies. So there's, you know, it's really a niche Bible compared yeah. to the Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible that Jack Hayford mm -hmm. edited, which had over 16 million copies right. done. This is really a niche Bible. And for it to continue, you need a strategy from heaven. We're probably going to need some investors in it. And I don't think that we're the right people to handle it. We've been in talks with Destiny publishers about them maybe taking it on. Uh, they would have to get the rights from the current publishers to do that. The current publishers, they want the money up front before they'll print well, it's it. China that printed it. It's printed Communist in China. It's been printed in China, but the publishers are out of Singapore and they just need to make sure their costs are covered. So basically, however many we need, we need them uh, that money up front and we're not good at fundraising so that's kind of what it comes comes down to you are one of the contributors so when they are available people of course can always order them through you but how do we get them to you well there are not many copies <laughs> left they're, they're I, think I, I think I got the last few or close to the last few. <laughs> <laughs> and Mario is down for Mario needs millions he's already <laughs> promised it was a hundred or two hundred so <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a project that needs prayer. We believe this thing needs to get out. We need the divine strategy. If people want to get the just the Bible mm -hmm. without the accompanying library of 297 PDFs, mm -hmm. they can get that through Logos, a digital version. I believe it's $25 on Logos. Yeah, For those that do have it, since we're, he was talking about 21st century reformation, at the back of the book of Romans, his 16 points that summarize 40 years of revival and research study show that that's there. This Bible is full of compressed teachings. We never advertised this except like this. There's also a revival um, Bible website that D. Patton from Ministry of Helps has done. But like I said, those numbers are limited. So if people buy them, they're just going to be gone. And we, <laughs> we need to create some more really soon, basically. So. For the, those that already have the study Bible, um, if they go to page, I believe it's 1860, Dr. Tamar Winslow's study on the subject of the anointings, her summaries in scripture are there on the anointing. She talks about the water anointings, the wine anointings, the oil anointings, the fire and lightning anointings, uh, the wind anointings. This um, is the lady that has done inducted Bible study since she was 19. 19? She, she was called into ministry at age reading. 8. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. She's had a supernatural meeting, uh, ministry. She's a THD, a DD, and I think a double PhD now. <laughs> she's sort of our super theologian friend. Uh, she did 30,000 pages of research oh, on the subject of the anointing. And for those that have been blessed to get a study Bible, yeah, they go to 1860. You can see the start of her study there, um, it's her scriptural summary mm -hmm. on that subject. I know our Pentecostal and uh, charismatic friends really love it. It's under the <laughs> operation and ministry of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1861, sorry, 1861. Doug, you know, the reason why you're there is quite simple. We've seen what God's done in your life, and not only what he's done in your life, but other people that have done similar things to what he's given you. You are a representative to us in this work of what he can do mm. in these kinds of situations. So mm. you're not just you, you're all of the things that have come out and spread from what he's given you. I've often used you as an example, Doug, yeah. of uh, the scripture, you see a man who's diligent in his work. Yeah. He shall yeah. not stand before obscure men, yeah. he shall stand before kings. That's, you. That's what I've, I've seen with you, you know, yeah. from the humble beginnings of your ministry, when you took that man in, you let him stay with you, when you're into bodybuilding, 
fruit of this giant ministry that you have today, working with people in politics and business executives, and you know, it's just incredible. I just tell people I'm like the Asian Forrest Gump. I just show up in the picture. <laughs> Something I learned from 40 years ago, I just simply said to the Lord, and I think we all have said it to some degree when we see in Isaiah 6, woe is me. We recognize our own undoneness, but when the Lord says, who can I send? And basically all I did was say, Lord, I'll make myself available if you can use someone like me. So every day I want to be available and walk in simple obedience, which for me is the highest form of worship. Um, and because I, in scriptures, you know, important first reference, the first time the word worship is ever given in context of scripture is not about singing or instruments. It's about obedience to God. And uh, so I want to live in availability and simple obedience every day. However that looks, every day is different. I just want to live that way and recognizing I'm nothing without him. And there is nothing without him. And so I, I just... I even cherish and think about the investments in my life, the Leonard Ravenhills, the David Wilkerson's, the Winky Prattneys, the David Ravenhills, to the Edwin Lewis Coles, to so many others who had invested in me, Dr. Kulon Teak in Singapore. And there's just so many relationships and friends that I'm humbled by. I just never want to take those relationships for granted because I truly believe that the kingdom of God is built on relationships, first with God, then with one another. And that's a stewardship we should cherish. You know, the cool thing, too, about what you're doing, Doug, is that, that word which we use for the church, Ecclesia, that's not just our gathering. It's a marketplace. It's not just a box that has the church in it. That's the whole world. That's the tertiary meaning, I think, yeah. in, uh, of Ecclesia. What it's actually a, a gathering of people that meet in the marketplace. That's yeah. where the church actually is. Supposed to be. And you're, like, exemplifying that. Yeah, you are ministry. the marketplace. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you. Things go wrong, you get all the marketplace people together and give them to talk to the Lord about it. It's really cool to watch. But would you take time to pray? Because I really believe the things you have to say spark a lot of conversation. And I thank you so much, William, for clarifying earlier, because I think the bottom line is, I guess I wasn't talking about the how-tos, but more like our, our posture for his presence. And I think regardless of how that looks, it's not we don't want God in a box, but what we do need his presence. And usually for me, it's uh, the place of the posture of my heart and humility before a holy God. Yeah, Father, so, we thank you for the, the opportunity to hang out together. Yes, Lord. It's great in heaven when we can do this without having to Zoom or do anything else. But we love you and we so appreciate what you've done. And we want to see, especially the nations that we represent and the countries and that we represent and also the different states and the towns and cities all the way down to the individual people who sit in your presence sometimes. And we ask for your mercy to what we have done to your beautiful world. Mm. We ask that you will raise up people who really love you, who really trust you, who are willing mm. to follow you and do anything you ask them to. So we put back and squarely into your hands our own lives, our own decisions of choices that we make in life. We want them to be guided and directed by your spirit. So we ask you to show mercy upon us and our life and demonstrate again to the places that we represent what you really like. Mm -hmm. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've been. Think of the thousands of years that you've seen and watched and been shown to your joy what your children can do if we really trust you and love you. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, mm -hmm. amen. Well, Father, we lift up Winky and 
Faye and William to you. And I, we thank you that you would renew their strength, give them continued favor, a renewed uh, sense of the revelation of the work of the cross and the power of your resurrection. God, I pray that you would just encourage Winky to know that all these decades, 60 years of saying yes to you and the calling to impact generations and generations to come, would you let him see with his eyes all that he has cried out for, all that he has believed for? Would you allow him to see it, not just in his family, but see the moves of God that he's been crying out for in a new and fresh way as he continues to invest in us? Lord, I pray that we will be good stewards of what you have deposited to us through ministries like Winkies and his family and others. I pray, Lord, that we would never take for granted these opportunities and these moments, even now, these defining moments of getting together on this call in the technology you've provided that we can do this across the world right now. God, I pray that you would continue stirring in each of us, even as we process and listen to and watch again over and over what has been invested into us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.